Welcome to The Teaching Curve, a podcast exploring the pedagogy of global politics and international relations. Brought to you by ISA's Professional Resource Center under the auspices of the Innovative Pedagogy Initiative. I'm Jamie Free, Associate Provost and Professor of Global Politics at Bridgewater College. Each episode of The Teaching Curve is a conversation with thoughtful and engaged teachers in international relations. The goal is to celebrate and inspire pedagogical creativity by dealing with the issues that all faculty who teach international politics wrestle with sometimes. The opportunity to sit back and reflect and have conversations with people about our teaching is one of the best ways we can be thoughtful and make sure that we're meeting all the learning objectives that we have for our classes. Today's conversation is with Dr. Anna Meyer, Nottingham University in the UK, and Dr. Liam Midzane-Gobin of Brock University in Canada. In the conversation, we explore this concept of decolonization. The question raised by the decolonization discourse is whether the ways that we teach and the things that we teach perpetuate systems of inequality and prevent a more liberated and equal approach to education. Those are very difficult questions that have complex implications for how we think about ourselves, our relationships with our students, and our discipline. So uh, we're here at ISA Northeast in Baltimore taping a live version of the Teaching Curve podcast with Anna Meyer and Liam Midzane-Gobin, who are here to talk about decolonizing syllabi and approach to teaching in general. Um, so thank you both for being here. I'm really pleased that you were able to make this happen. Sure thing, our pleasure. Yeah, thanks so much for the invite. Okay, so uh, the first thing I always do is I talk to people about their identity as professors, as teachers. And of course, that's determined by the students that you're in inter interaction with, in relationship with. And re so please tell us about the students at your institution, Anna. Sure. So I work at the University of Nottingham in the UK, which is somewhat equivalent to an R1 institution in the US. And a lot of the students that we get are students who thought they might want to go to Oxford or Cambridge with all the associated stereotypes and for various reasons have not done that and have come to us instead. So we have a very interesting mix of upper class, well-off students, um, mostly white. But then we also have an interesting incoming class of what are called in the UK widening participation students. So these might be working class students, they might be students of color, um, they might be international students um, from less wealthy backgrounds. And so it's a interesting challenge to think about how to cater to students who have, some of them have very really extensive private school educations with all of the attendance stereotypes that come with that mm. and students who have had less access to opportunity in education. So how do you reach both groups and how do you bring very different lived experiences into the classroom? Excellent. Liam. So Brock University is maybe a little bit different than that where it isn't necessarily small, but it isn't one of the research intensive universities in Canada in the same way. Um, but it's very much a comprehensive university. And so every university in Canada kind of offers a really good comprehensive undergraduate and mostly master's education. Um, but what Brock uh, has done and kind of was developed to do in the mid 20th century was to cater to the Niagara region. And so the way that that has operated is that historically a lot of the students have come from the Niagara region and so historically um, Niagara has been quite an agricultural area um, and so these are a lot of first-generation students 
um, oftentimes, less so as we get into things now that Brock has been established for a while. Um, but then, as with almost every other university in Canada, Brock has put a lot of emphasis on recruiting international students. And so I have a real mix between quite a kind of white, a lot of first gen, but largely working class um, student community from Niagara, and then also quite a, and that's diversifying quite a bit, but we also draw from both Toronto and international sources where they get quite a quite a diverse group of students. And so it's a real, it's a real mix while the school still is kind of historically quite white. So one of the reasons that I was hoping to talk to you both is because I want to unpack a little bit more this idea about decolonizing, which is, um, I mean, I think everybody's attending to this in particular ways right now, but I'm not sure everybody's speaking about it in the same way. So can you tell me, first of all, what you think you mean when you talk about decolonizing syllabi, courses, curricula? This is a great question. I'm really glad that you asked it um, because much in the same way that I think DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion mm -hmm. is a buzzword in US education, which is where I grew up and where I did everything. Um, in the UK, decolonization has taken on that same buzzword quality and is often used synonymously with how I think we think about DEI in the US, which is all kinds of incorrect. Uh -huh. <laughs> the, the genealogy of that term, the scholarship on that term, it's completely different. And so decolonization, especially in the US and Canadian context, is about return of indigenous land and life. Mm -hmm. And that is very different from adding more diverse authors to a syllabus or incorporating Global South case studies into a class, which is also useful and good, um, but comes from a different ethos. And the way that I try to explain this to folks in the UK, which is not a settler colony, right. is that it is about changing not only what we know, but how we know mm -hmm. and where we think knowledge comes from and what are valid ways of knowing. Mm. And that naturally leads us away from historically Western enlightenment tradition kinds of approaches to education mm. to traditions that come out of indigenous politics, out of global South politics, different ways of relating to the world and understanding our experiences. And so even if you don't live in a settler colony, you can still take that kind of approach to where are you getting your ideas from? Whose ideas are you valuing and in mm -hmm. what ways? Mm -hmm. And what it really means to learn and in what kind of scenarios you're learning, I think. Because one of the things for me teaching Indigenous politics, it's I have students read a lot of, I mean, we read a lot of Indigenous authors, obviously, but there's all kinds of other ways of learning through story or through um, like those oral traditions, through actually being out on the land um, in kind of Indigenous studies and Indigenous um, teachings that I think is incredibly valuable, but isn't ever really, or is oftentimes not brought into the classroom. Uh -huh. And so what is especially interesting for me there, if we think about decolonization, what we're really talking about is moving past colonization. And if we think of colonization as a sort of wound, right, it's it's a sort of violence done to peoples, to different ideas, different thought, different knowledge traditions. Mm -hmm. What to me, and this is coming from a kind of decolonial science uh, perspective, but what that is meant to do is offer some sort of repair or reparation. Mm -hmm. And so if I think about decolonizing, it's not only a sort of undoing of colonial relations of the violences, but it's being able to build anew. And so these different kinds of knowledges allow us to do some of that rebuilding and repair work. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really important. And to me, it gets to the whole creative endeavor of trying to get students to really think and engage and, and kind of get creative and interested in, uh, in what, what they're learning about. 
So uh, is, are we talking here about the removal of things or the addition of things? That's interesting um, because I don't think of it as summative or subtractive in either direction. So, but I'm glad you bring this up because oftentimes rejoinders that we get from people who are skeptical are like, well, I don't want to remove old white male author from my syllabus. He is very important. And that may very well be true. Mm -hmm. And the sort of way that I, I at least think about this is that it's not getting rid of perspective. It's questioning, given that we have limited time and space, where do we put our attention? Mm -hmm. And how, and for what purpose and for whom does that serve? Like I can continue to put, and I teach oftentimes like very traditional international relations courses mm -hmm. and the canon such as it has been constructed is full of old white men. And many of whom have very valuable ideas, but they also come from particular lived experiences and positionalities that lead them to look at the world in particular ways. Mm -hmm. That's not wrong necessarily. It's not bad necessarily, but there are other ways. And so what students and communities am I able to reach by only looking at this one particular perspective? And so there is, I would say, perhaps an additive component to that and that you mm -hmm. are thinking about how do I re like free jigsaw things yeah. on, on my syllabus, on my reading list. But it's also about how do I approach the things that are already there mm -hmm. also. Um, so if I am teaching an older white male theorist, how are we engaging with that work? Are we just reading it? Are we being critical of it? Are we going beyond that and saying, where is this person coming from with mm -hmm. their ideas? Mm -hmm. Does that sort of jive with how different people in this classroom have experienced the world? If it doesn't, why? Mm -hmm. And are there other ways of approaching these same sorts of topics? And what do we gain and lose from doing that? And I think about my political theory comprehensive reading list, because on it, there was not a single author who came from outside of Europe or what we would today understand as Europe, yeah. kind of including the Greeks and, and the Romans, but or um, today's North America, so right. mostly the United States. And what that does, and in saying that this is the canon, and like we do this in the intro to IR classes and in all kinds of classes, methods classes, especially, mm -hmm. I think, um, it tells our students that this is what's true, or this is a kind of universal experience. But especially as we're trying to expand who gets to come into higher education, mm -hmm. and we've done, I think, a lot better job of that recently than, mm -hmm. than we have in the past, what that ends up doing is telling our students that their perspectives or their kind of understandings of the world aren't, aren't valid, aren't true. And so what, to me, decolonizing gets to do is really complicate how we understand the world and the different ways of interpreting and understanding it, um, because politics is not just the sum of kind of a European, North American understanding of it. Um, there's a lot more out there, including just different dimensions, different cosmological dimensions that we can kind of access. Sure, absolutely. I, I do think that this complexity idea gets at some of the critical agency that we want to provide to the mm -hmm. students and being able to sort through on their own what they think the ideas and how things look from the world. So, uh, but that's also... That, that makes education much more difficult yes, for yes, the students. Yes. How do you deal with the resistance from the students when, they, when they're saying, well, just tell me what? Yeah, so two responses to this. One is that I think oftentimes 
our concern about those sorts of responses mm -hmm. of students who might be resistant or unsure is really overstated, mm -hmm. at least in my experience. Even students who are not familiar with trying to think this way, who have perhaps had much narrower life experiences for various reasons, are oftentimes still quite curious. And I think that the world of students, even today, and like I'm in my 30s, so I was not an undergrad that long ago, but it's, a bit, it's been long enough. The mm -hmm. pace of the world is so much faster now. And our students have access to so much more information than even we did uh, as young people. And so even if they grew up in a small town and haven't interacted with very many kinds of people, they've probably seen other kinds of people on the internet oh, yeah. and, and are at least aware of these perspectives. So you're meeting them in a very different place than you were meeting a student like me mm -hmm. 10, 15 years ago. So I think taking that into account and really holding that is mm -hmm. important uh, when we're talking about resistance. Now, of course, there is resistance, and especially of the kind that you were mentioning of just giving the answer to the test. <laughs> um, this is especially true in the UK, where the way that our classes are structured, at least historically, is that there are far fewer assignments than in the US, at least graded assignments. And yep. so a lot of your grade can, in some cases, come from one thing. So it makes complete sense why students would be stressed mm -hmm. about that. And so what I like about having these conversations and thinking about decolonizing is not only working within the bounds of what we're already doing to diversify mm -hmm. it or whatever, but also as an opportunity to fundamentally restructure and challenge the ways that we approach education because we can think about ways to assess student learning that are not tied to one or two big assessments. That brings in also questions of accessibility, which are important from like a disability justice perspective. Mm -hmm. So there are other opportunities here. And I think framing it as opportunities and not necessarily as challenges is really important, which is not to say that it's not difficult, especially if we're new to it and we're uh -huh. learning how to do it. But there are chances here to really broaden what is quote unquote acceptable yeah. in the classroom. And that can be really fun uh, and playful and joyous mm -hmm. also, uh, which I think is great. I, it's something that I still struggle with mm -hmm. because especially teaching bigger classes at times, um, like students, I think rightly have been, and quite frankly, have been trained to say, well, I need this, or like they're going to university for a reason, yeah. that kind of life of the mind that we all love, because this is what we do for a living, um, that isn't there for everybody. And, and to a certain extent, I've learned to kind of meet students where they're at, and I've changed some of my mm. own approach to how to assess. But at the same time, i put a lot of emphasis in making sure my students know that there isn't a single right answer to a lot of the kinds of questions that I'll pose mm. and trying to give them that flexibility and say, what I'm expecting of you is what I'm grading you on is a level of engagement is of a level of you showing me how you're thinking through these questions mm -hmm. rather than what you told me necessarily. And that is in some respects more complicated for us too, right? Like it means sure. that the assessment itself takes a lot more work but I think it gives students space to get excited and have that creativity. Um, but yeah, it, it's difficult and it is still something I'm struggling with. Well, and the other piece of that, of course, is there you are not the only faculty member they're going to have at your institution. Mm -hmm. And so especially for an intro course, yes. <laughs> right, there is certain things that the faculty, the department is expecting the students who take that course to walk out of so that they can build on it in other right. ways for other mm -hmm. courses. And so this seems like it's got to be a fairly coordinated, or at least other people have to buy into this, because as you said, Anna, there's only so much time and space in one of those classes. And so if they are 
well, we're thinking of it as adding and complexifying and getting them to think and be able to adopt other perspectives in order to be able to evaluate things. There's also certain things that they're expected or other faculty members may be expecting them to walk out of the class with. Um, so how do you coordinate that with other people in your departments? That's really hard. <laughs> I have no good answers mm. here. Um, it may be helpful context. I'm in the second year of my first job post PhD. So still very new at trying to figure out how to do this at a departmental curricular level where I actually have some power. A little bit. <laughs> we're, we're getting there. Um, but your curriculum is very set. Like it's coordinated in a way that mine is very Yeah, that, that's very true. Like we are very much a learning outcome oriented system in which mm. everything is very blocked and scaffolded which can, which is, can be very useful. Like it structures student expectations in some ways, but it also is quite rigid and difficult to change. And it means that people are quite invested in that system and are resistant to changing it because it means that when you change one piece, you have to change all of the other pieces. Mm -hmm. And that's where I don't have good answers because I do think people rightly point out that that's a lot of work. There isn't, we don't have a lot of time and maybe we don't know how to do this because it's new to us. And so where do we find the time and energy to make those places? And where I would think about pushing back in that space is, well, ultimately what decolonization calls us to do is interrogate the systems and the structures in which we work. And those are much bigger conversations. Obviously not everyone wants to be a part of those, which I can get on some level. And also this is an opportunity to like have a space for imagination and creativity, like Liam was saying in not only what we are doing in any one class at any one time, but overall, what is the project of education that we're engaged in? And can we think about different institutional structures that will make that more possible, mm -hmm. which again, intersects with disability justice, with labor issues and such. And these are all really deeply interconnected things that the idea of decolonization pushes us to think further about, which is one thing I like about it. I'm lucky because most of the classes I teach are like the indigenous politics courses aren't required. And so I think that gives me a flexibility mm. and a freedom to mm. kind of not have the same kinds of expectations set like you might uh, with a much more, more strict curriculum. But what I still really try to do is get those analytical skills mm -hmm. and like writing skills and whatnot. Um, and so if I'm looking at kind of developing skills, then other faculty members kind of know that I'm going to put work into that. Um, but yeah, I definitely have a freedom to allow the students to explore in a way that there isn't a sort of set, mm -hmm. here is what, here are the specific things you're supposed to know coming out. Um, instead, for me, it's here are the different ways that I kind of want you to be thinking or, or, or learning in this instance. You know, and, and I agree with you. That's a, that's a luxury. That's a good freedom <laughs> to be able to have because there's another perspective, which would be that uh, it's, you know, we've gone through the ringer on some of this stuff. These are the things that we know mm. that should be taught. There's a, um, I don't know if anybody would necessarily use this word, but there's a certain certainty about mm -hmm. the canon mm -hmm. that says this is why it's the canon. And so if we are, uh, if, if we're spending time complexifying stuff, that's mm -hmm. great for upper level students in the major, but like the people who are coming in just now and need to scaffold until they get to that point, or the people who are just doing this for a general education requirement, there's certain things that we've, we've decided they need to know. But I think that gets to what we end up 
wanting our society to look like. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, I think especially in international relations or political science, like a lot of the students that come through our classes are going to be in decision-making positions. Um, and to me, it's incredibly helpful if I can get a student in second year to start thinking a little bit differently mm -hmm. or asking questions about, well, why has that always been the case? So, I mean, it's, it's harder to decolonize a, a, a research methods class. But I always have time in there for Indigenous research methods, mm -hmm. because I think it pushes back against the expectations that a lot of students have mm -hmm. of, well, I need to be unbiased, or I need to be very objective. Mm -hmm. And I try to do a lot of work to show like the value of interpretive analysis mm -hmm. and kind of all of those things. But what the Indigenous methods class really gets home, I, I hope, or what I hope that students take from it is that there are different purposes for knowledge rather than just to know. Mm -hmm. um, and if they go out then and they don't ever take any more classes of mine, but faced with a situation at work or something where they can maybe mm -hmm. question, well, why have things always been like this? Or why is this process the way it is? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, what are the power relations that underpin this? Mm -hmm. That to me is a, a bit of a win because it is easier if we just follow a canon, but that ends up reproducing a kind of society that. I think creates those colonial harms in the first place. And to me, it's really important that education not do its best to not contribute to that. Mm -hmm. I left the air quotes around we <laughs> at one point, Jamie, because uh, that was a question running through my head as you were formulating that question. It's one that I ask my students a lot and they're probably tired of hearing it. Um, but who decides? Who gets to decide? Mm -hmm. um, and so when we're talking about who has constructed the canon and we that has historically meant white people um people in europe and north america mm -hmm. uh, mostly men mm -hmm. although that's changing a bit and so it's worth asking and challenging pushing back against that idea that the canon is the canon because it's important and great like it was important and great for certain kinds of people mm -hmm. and the type of higher education that even people who are resistant to this kind of approach are still invested in building nowadays mm -hmm. is much wider and is about access for people who are not from the elite halls mm -hmm. uh, of Eaton and, and the U.S. equivalents of private schools and such. Um, so part of this also is about broadening the we. And when you bring in different voices, naturally that widens and your sense of the canon becomes mm -hmm. something constructed for a different group of people, which I think is great. Mm -hmm. And you quote, you maybe directly quote, but you brought up like Robert Cox's idea yeah. of theory, yes, like exactly. who it's for and what its purpose is. And uh, I, I, like, to me, that is essential in all of our pedagogy is what are we trying to achieve with this? Mm -hmm. And what is what we're teaching trying to achieve? And, and I think being attentive to that question of, well, we're broadening the we. And so do we want to reproduce the same system out of that mm -hmm. broader we? Um, some people are going to say yes, but it's kind of my hope that I can at least get some students to think, oh, maybe we don't have to, right. because that doesn't necessarily work. for them. And if there's any goal of education beyond just creating the next workforce, it is creating the next level of citizen, which is somebody who in a democracy gets to participate in those conversations about what should be and how to process that stuff. And so even for people who have the same kind of privileges that I bring into the classroom, it's empowering for them to be able to say, yeah, but uh, maybe there's better ways to do these things, even if the current system has been structured in that way on my behalf. Well, because colonialism and patriarchy, I think, hurt everybody. And if we move past the sort of 
hierarchy of privileges in a way, we can start to open up those conversations mm -hmm. and really figure out like, what would I actually want to do? And that might not look like reproducing the same kind of system that has built those kinds of mm -hmm. privileges. And so, yeah, it, that flexibility, I think is so important. That sounds a good way to end. So <laughs> Anna Meyer and Liam Midzang-Gobin, yes. thank you very much thank for you. being here thank and you, being Jamie. part of the teaching curve. Um, it is wonderful to be able to do this in person. And it's particularly valuable to be able to do it at a conference where we're talking about some of these big issues of, in all kinds of panels, all kinds of opportunities to interact with other people. I hope you all are able to come to the conference in Montreal. Uh, don't forget that the Innovative Pedagogy Conference is on Tuesday, March 14th, the day before the main conference begins. And we'll be having all kinds of conversations about how to do pedagogy and how to make sure this stuff works well in everybody's classroom, because ultimately it's about being a, a creative pedagogue to be able to make this work for the students that are in your class. So anyway, thanks very much, guys. Thank you. And uh, we'll see you again. The Teaching Curve podcast is hosted on the Professional Resource Center of the International Studies Association and produced under the auspices of the Innovative Pedagogy Initiative of ISA. Thanks for joining us again on The Teaching Curve, this time right across from Camden Yards in Baltimore. And remember, learn something every time you teach. <laughs>